0: So we're starting off a brand new series, and if you can see up there, it's through the book of Habakkuk. Um, and so for those of you who, uh, who know the book of Habakkuk, which my guess is very, very few of you, uh, and for those of you who don't know the book of Habakkuk, that's the way that word is pronounced, Habakkuk. And so uh, you can pull out your Bibles now if it's on a phone uh, or physically. Uh, good luck finding it. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, he's going to be one of the, uh, the 12 minor prophets is largely who we're going to... Uh, to be talking about. But but this wasn't supposed to be actually the series that we were going to be walking through at this point. Every year around October, I take some time to get away from the office. I spend some time praying and thinking about what it is the Lord wants us to go through for the year ahead and I start outlining our year of teaching. And and uh, it's been really helpful to be able to do this and to do a lot of listening, and then to do a lot of research with that, and to chunk off different topics, different books of the Bible, that sort of thing. But every once in a while, you just have kind of some of these empty weeks, you're like, I don't know what it is that I'm going to put in, in that spot. It doesn't really fit into the schedule, and you kind of plug things in. You just kind of hope that, hey, I really hope this uh, this kind of works as the uh, the weeks come ahead. And so this was supposed to be one of those series where you're like, well, I just hope this Kind of, kind of works. We're going to do something called Summer Stories and talk about people's encounters uh, with Jesus, and essentially just choose some individuals and talk about how their lives were changed because of their encounters with Jesus and that sort of thing. Um, but as I was looking forward into that series uh, a few weeks back. I was like, I just don't feel like this fits with not only where we're supposed to be going, but what God really wants us to be able to walk through at the, uh, the end of summer. Um, and, and so because of that, I started thinking about it, started praying about it, doing some research, and I felt like God wanted us to tackle the idea of doubt, and specifically doubt amid storms. Like, God, where are you, right? That's, that was kind of the feeling that I got, and as I was looking ahead, um, I, uh, I, I stuck that in the back of my mind and I kept doing more research and really I like being tied to a specific book of the Bible. That's, it, it makes me feel more comfortable. I, I, I feel like I'm not giving kind of my own bias and that sort of thing. Well, what, what do I want to say about it? And then I'll just find some scripture to back it up or anything like that. For me, it was more, it's always more, let's find a book of the Bible, let's walk through it and what God wants us to hear, we are going to hear in the midst of that. So I had kind of these, these things going on, because we got four weeks until our Love Where You Live series that we do uh, every year, and then we have eight weeks until we're going to preach through the seven churches of Revelation, which I'm really excited uh, about that. But then we just had these like four weeks that I felt like we needed to be tied to a specific book of the Bible and on top of that I felt like God wanted us to talk about doubt and specifically doubt in the midst of storms so naturally I landed on the book of Habakkuk which all of you I'm sure are very very familiar with uh with the book of Habakkuk um because I mean honestly most of you have no idea what is in the book of Habakkuk or if you have read it it's been so long or it's a pretty short book of the bible too and so people are like I don't even understand what's going on in this book of the bible like what is it that that we're going to be going to be hearing and uh, and walking through and so uh, I've never preached through it, it's kind of one of those forgotten books that people don't spend, spend a lot of time in. So this is what's going to happen today. We got, we got two parts to my message today, okay. The first part, we got to be in the classroom for a little bit. We got to give context because most of us have no clue who, who Habakkuk is, no clue when this was written, no clue why this was written, no clue what's going on at the time or anything like that. And then once we get out of the classroom, We'll get to Bible as fast as we can because, man, I want to jump in my pool, too. Um, so I'll have to say, let's get some bearings for, for this book. And so the first thing we need to understand is the book of Habakkuk is written and attributed to a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. Okay, that's the reason that it's called, that's where we get most names from different books of the Bible. And his name specifically means embracer or one who wrestles. Okay? We don't know a ton about the guy. We honestly don't. But we do know that that's kind of what his name means. And names have meaning in scripture. I mean, all of you guys, all of your names mean something, right? Um, for Sarah and I, names of our kids, like what they meant, weren't super important in the beginning. And so like when we named Cooper, we are like, oh, that's a cool name. Also, your name means barrel maker, right? Congratulations. I hope you, hope you hit that standard at, a, at some point. But Habakkuk's name means something. And so it's embracer or one who wrestles. And the historical context is that he prophesied during a really difficult time period in Judah's history. So if you go back, you'll recognize that there used to be one nation, Israel. Israel got bo- broken up. There's 12 tribes of Israel, right? And then eventually it got split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And so we always hear about Israel. We don't often hear about this kingdom of Judah. And so Habakkuk largely is a prophet to that kingdom specifically. And so it's a rough period in their history. It's around, it's like a late 7th century before Christ. And this nation is facing moral decay, This nation is facing a ton of different injustices. Um, uh, There's this threat of what biblical historians call the Babylonian invasion. That's a big deal in the Old Testament, the Babylonian invasion. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But this is written at the same time as two other prophets. So I know there's some of you, I wish there were more of you, but I know there's some of you who like to read along with the text that we're preaching through and that sort of thing. So so you can knock out Habakkuk in about less than 30 minutes, probably 20 minutes. So once you're done with Habakkuk, there's two other prophets who are prophesying at the same time, meaning they have a different perspective on the different things that are going down. So we have two others, Jeremiah, which most of you have heard of because of Jeremiah 29, 11, right? So you have Jeremiah and then you have another minor prophet by the guy by the name of Zephaniah. And so all three of these prophets are going to be prophesying at the same time about the same events that are going on with slightly different perspectives. And so if you do like to read through Zephaniah uh Habakkuk and Jeremiah are your, uh, are your three. But more importantly, the central theme of this book is really what we need to be concerned with, right? Like essentially, this whole book revolves around the concept of divine justice, revolves around the concept of there is an injustice, God, why aren't you dealing with it? There is something going wrong. God, help me deal with it. And so Habakkuk, and as we're going to see today, he questions God's apparent silence in the face of wickedness. And he's just looking for answers regarding God's character. He's looking for answers regarding God's purpose. Um, And so largely what's happening here is there is a group of people. Some of your Bibles say the Chaldeans, C-H-A-L-D-E-A-N-S. Others of your Bibles say Babylonians. Same group of people, different names for, for them, but it's the same group of people. I'm gonna use the term Babylonian today. That's what our scripture um, says. But this group, the Babylonians, they are rising to power. Okay, this is the Babylonian Empire, which maybe you maybe you have heard of that before, and it plays a massive role in Habakkuk's prophecy. So God reveals at that point that he is going to raise up the Babylonians, this group of people, to judge Judah, to judge some of God's chosen people. There's all these crazy people that we're going to hear about in a second, and I'm going to use this really, really immoral nation In order to judge this nation who is supposed to be moral um, and, and honoring to God. And so while all of that is happening, Habakkuk's journey, it largely kind of showcases the struggle of faith in the midst of uncertainty and faith in the midst of doubt. And so Habakkuk addresses uh, a specific historical context. We need to understand that. It's themes of wrestling with doubt, though, and and seeking understanding in times of injustice and and trusting God's sovereignty. They're obviously a huge deal then. But these are truths just like we pulled out in the book of Proverbs. Even though it may not be true for us today, that we can still pull, pull applicable truths out and apply them to our lives. And I think this is a very, very real one. At the end of the day, Habakkuk is a book about faith. That's its central theme. Everything that it talks about is about faith. Actually, Habakkuk 2.4, which is what we're gonna, part of what we're going to preach through next week, says that the righteous one will live by his faith. That's part of it. It's actually even quoted. That scripture is quoted three times in the New Testament. So for those of you like New Testament people, Romans 1.17 quotes that verse. Galatians 3.11 quotes that verse. Hebrews 10.38, it quotes that verse as well. And he takes us on just like this journey of faith. And so there's three major sections and they all highlight faith in a different sort of thought in a different sort of way. So over the next four weeks, um, we're going we're gonna to walk through, we're going to think through Habakkuk's prophecy. Okay, and we're going to trace its journey of faith from this idea of wrestling with God when times are hard to simply resting in the insurance that when all is said and done, God's got it under control. That's what we're going to look at. And I think the reason we need to look at it is I think there's a lot of us in here that need to take a crash course on this idea. Because we don't, we don't like not having answers. We don't like uncertainty in any way. You know, when my dad walked through and died of cancer, I needed a regular dose of God's certainty. Why? Because I didn't have answers. There was nothing that I could do to fix it. All I could do was just sit and rest and be like, God, what are you doing? Tell me what you are doing. Fix this issue. My dad loves you. Surely he can reach more people with his life than he can do than he can reach with his death. Why aren't you fixing this supposed injustice, right? So if you're new to church, you may not understand that word sovereignty, it's kind of a theological word Christians like to throw it around, but it simply means like being the ultimate source of all power. There is one person who is gonna be the ultimate source of all power, all authority over everything and anything that exists. And only God can make that claim of being sovereign. Even for you parents out there who are like, I am sovereign over my children. No, there's not, they got secrets, right? You don't have all authority over them. You may think you do, right? But when you're not around, that authority goes away. And so this idea of God's sovereignty, and that's the reason that God alone is worthy of worship. He's superior to all other gods, and and, and that makes him and him alone worthy of our worship. But for you, maybe for you, it isn't like loss of a loved one, like it was for me. Maybe that's not the issue. Maybe it's a lost job. Maybe it's a, a divorce. Maybe you're struggling with, like, anxiety and depression that stems from fear of the unknown. Or maybe you know too much and that's giving you anxiety and depression. Like, I don't know what it is for you, but we need to be absolutely aware that, that as life seemingly just comes unraveled around us, that God has all of it under control. And it seems like a very Christian answer, right? It seems like when you don't know what's happening, like, God's got it under control, but Habakkuk's going to do something really, really interesting here in these opening verses. And Habakkuk's going to do something that we don't do well as a church. We don't do well as a nation. Okay? He's going to lament. He's going to cry out. He's going to be very, very upset with God because he doesn't understand what's going on. So with all that being said, this is Habakkuk speaking starting in verse 1 of Habakkuk 1. It says, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received... How long, Lord, must I call for help? Do you not listen or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? Like the tone here that Habakkuk is taking with God, I'm like, you got to chill out, man. Like you got to chill. You're talking to God here. He goes on in verse three. He says, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife, conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, him and the righteous. So the justice is perverted. Sound familiar? This here largely is a, it's a deep utterance This how it feels, a groaning of frustration. Right. How long are you going to let this happen, God? Like I do my part, I do what you ask me to do. I serve you, and still my marriage is falling apart. I read my Bible, and still my kids are my kids are completely out of control. They are so far from you. How would you allow this to happen, God? Don't you see it? Don't you care? That's what Habakkuk is. He's just pushing into it. Right? I, I'm generous, God, with my money. I give to the church. I help people when, when they're on the side of the road and they need something to do. Like, I, I do my part, but my finances are still a mess. How come you aren't doing anything about that? I'm pre- God, I'm pretty sure I'm getting fired next week, and you don't seem to care. It's the same voice that we use in our heads. Oftentimes we don't use it, we don't verbalize these things. But these are thoughts and the emotions that largely largely come through. How long do I have to cry out until you fix this? And that's what Habakkuk pushes into. And maybe it's not even your personal life. Maybe, man, you log on to Facebook and you get a reality of what's happening in the world. Right? And you're our God, or our, like our country, our city. My neighborhood, God, all of these things have just seemingly gone to hell. How long do I have to wait before I either move out of California and find greener pastures? Because clearly the grass is always greener on the other side of the state border. Like, how long? Because I don't know if I can take this anymore. And we almost get this like posture with God, like, like, if you don't do something about this, you just watch, God. I'll do something about it. And just kind of like get angry. And I get it, right? Habakkuk, he, he is upset. His country, Judah, is under attack. His homeland is being overrun with people who all they want to do is conquer. And we're going to see that in a second. But he's like, look at all of this sin that's happening here. Don't you care that people don't love you? Don't you care that people are just paying lip service to you in order to accomplish their own personal goals? They don't actually care about acknowledging you as Lord of their lives? Don't you care, God? This prophecy introduces itself, like the, the book rather, introduces itself as the prophecy that the prophet Habakkuk received. The word translated received here, it actually literally means burden. Like, this is the information that Habakkuk received, and now he is burdened by it. It burdened him tremendously until he could hold, it on, hold on to it no longer, and so because that, he had to speak out. And it's actually interesting, because Habakkuk's burden is not immorality. I think we would automatically assume that his burden is immorality and everything that's going on. And look at, the, look at the world today. Like, that's the burden, right? No, the burden is God's silence it. He's upset about the fact that God's not doing anything about the injustice. Right? It's like when you got two kids and, and the older kid is upset because the younger kid broke a rule. And the older kid's not mad at the, the, the younger kid. He's mad at you because you're not enforcing the rule, the standard that you put into place. Right? Like, mom, dad, but he. Yeah? He did. Don't you care? Ain't about that, probably not. I'm go deal with it. <laughs> but that's what Habakkuk's burden was. God's indifference to the wickedness around him. And he seemed to have lived and ministered around the time that the, the Babylon was kind of flexing its military muscles. The Babylonians, right? Flexing their military muscles. Assyria, and this is some deeper history. Assyria had probably already conquered Israel at this point. So Judah saw everything that was going on. Judah saw what was going to happen if they kind of continued down this road. So that means that Habakkuk lived when Israel had given itself completely completely to godlessness, their brothers and sisters had given themselves already to godlessness. And so he sees the same thing happening in Judah, and he's like, if we don't do something, that's going to happen. That's that's largely his concern, that God's chosen people are going to turn their back on him or already have turned their back on him. There's actually a king at that same time, a guy by the name of King Josiah, Okay, and King Josiah, he actually, he, he did his best to do some, like, external changes that would hopefully kind of turn the hearts of God's people. He had restored the temple at that point. He had re-implemented worship largely. Okay, but as we read in Zephaniah, minor prophet, guy who wrote about it, same thing that is happening. Zephaniah told us that, that, that the hearts of the people were far, were far from God. So Habakkuk, he's deeply burdened that Judah is swimming deeper and deeper into these waters kind of 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 rebellion while God seemingly just watched. As far as he could tell, God was indifferent to the sin of his people. And so he seems to have reached a breaking point where he gets to a point where he's like, how long are you going to let this happen? It also kind of looks like that Habakkuk wasn't really about the idea of God being indifferent to evil either, right? Verse 3 It says, like, why do you make me look at justice? Why would you allow me to look at this? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? He says, destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. It's everywhere, God. I can see it. Surely you can see it. Why do you allow this to happen? And so at the time, as in in most societies, there's privileged and underprivileged people. Okay, That word's kind of been hijacked. I'm not using it in the sense of like, oh, you were born, and so because of the fact that you were born, you now have privilege. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who have and people who have not. And so there's privileged and underprivileged people in that society, and the privileged people among among God's people, they are afflicting the underprivileged who were suffering greatly at this point, but God just seemed to not care, at least from Habakkuk's point of view, Right? God not only forced Habakkuk to look on helplessly at the evil around him, but God himself tolerated this evil. That's what it says. God tolerated it. And actually it gets even worse because if you look at the literal translation of the word tolerated, it means to look on with pleasure or approval. Not just indifference, like stamp of approval. I'm good with that. You just continue on your way. So from Habakkuk's point of view, God was not only disinterestedly failing to do anything, but he was actually actively approving of the oppression that was going on. That was Habakkuk's point of view. And so he goes on, he complains that the law is ineffective. We're talking about the Mosaic law here, right? It starts with the Ten Commandments. It's what is written largely in the first five books of the Bible. He's like, your law now is ineffective. So not only is Habakkuk like, God, how dare you? Now he's like, hey, that law you created, it doesn't work. It's ineffective at this point. How could laws, God's law be ineffective, right? God's law is perfect. It says not to murder people. We all know you shouldn't murder people. So how is it that that could be in, ineffective? Paul actually says in 1 Timothy one that the law is good provided we use it legitimately. We use it the way it's supposed to be used, right? And so by implication, then the law is not good and the law may be ineffective if it's used illegitimately, It's helpful then to ask, what legitimate use is the law to us? And not even just today, but back then as well. Ultimately, for you note takers, here's a list for you. You can write down a list real quick, okay? But here's a a list for you. There's three uses for God's law. What's the point of having God's law? The first thing, the first reason for God's law is to show us our sin. It's a mirror for us, a bar that we're supposed to hit. So if we do something we're not supposed to do, or we do something like, I wonder if that was a sin. I should look at God's law. God's law says I'm not supposed to kill people. I killed someone. Okay, that's an issue. Right? It shows us our, our sin. The second, the second reason for God's law is to reveal his character. When we look at God's law, we understand what it is he cares about. The more I, I read the Old Testament, the more I recognize how holy God is. I know a lot of people read the Old Testament, and they're always like, man, that God is mean. I'm like, no, that God is holy. That God is set apart from everybody else. He is above everything else, and he requires this sort of obedience to him. And so it largely reveals God's character. That's the second thing. And the third thing, one that we don't like to talk about very much, is, is his law should be used to govern civil law, specifically back then. Right? So if the Jews were using the law to reveal their sin, they were using the law to understand God's character, and they were using the law to govern their civil behavior, it would have been effective. Habakkuk's not saying here, like, hey, it just doesn't work. They're using it wrong is what we can pull from this. So Habakkuk kind of surveys the ethical landscape of everything that's going on at that time, and he saw that it had been proven ineffective at accomplishing these goals. Why? The reason is that they were using the law illegitimately. They were using the law to earn favor with God and to show their superiority to their neighboring nations. They're like, hey, look, I, I kept that standard. For a lot of you who, who, uh, who have read the New Testament or at least read the Gospels and that sort of thing, this is what the Pharisees largely are doing on a regular basis. The law is ineffective for the Pharisees because they're not using it the way they should. The Pharisees are using the law to show their superiority over other people. Look what I did. Look how great I am. Look at how much money that I gave. Look how many steps I didn't walk on Sunday because then it would have been considered work. Right? Like all the, I didn't pull a weed in my flower bed today because it's time for Sabbath. I need to rest. And talking about these things and making sure everybody knows how much better they are because of the fact that they followed the law. That's a wrong use of the law. And so because of that, since since the people of Judah were using that law illegitimately, it's proving ineffective. And the justice that Habakkuk wanted, of like, hey, God, do something, fix this. The justice he wanted, the justice that he hoped for, it never materializes. He wants to see it happen, but it doesn't materialize, right? Anytime we do something for kind of our own pleasure and use something like in a way that it wasn't intended to be used for, bad things are usually the result. Case in point, we celebrated 4th of July a couple weeks ago and, um, you know, we did, our, uh, we did our fireworks and we had some family over and that sort of thing. It was a great, great time. But as we're like shooting off fireworks, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Like, these aren't the same fireworks I used as I was growing up, and all of our fireworks were legal. I know the rest of the town, it was like war zone. All of ours were legal, okay, in case anybody was (laughs) going to come down on me later. But we're lighting these off, and I'm like, hold up. These aren't the same fireworks I used as a kid. Like, where's the piccolo peats? Where's the ground blooms, right? Like, where are these things that we used to be able to use? Like, I want to light a piccolo peat and have it scream at me for 10 seconds. Like, that's the sound of freedom, you know what I mean? Or beyond that, like, where's the ground blooms? I want to light a firework, and I want to have to, like, dodge a firework as it's flying in a direction that I don't know where it's going to land. And so I'm thinking about these things. I started thinking about, like, when I was a kid, right? And I started thinking about, like, those Piccolo peats. It reminded me of a time when uh, we lit off all our fireworks, and the neighbors were lighting off their fireworks, and we were good friends with the neighbors. And so uh, we finished ours the neighbors weren't quite done yet, but the parents decided to go inside with a whole slew of fireworks unlit for their kids to just use, right? Bad parenting, number one, right? Put those things in a place where those kids aren't able to get those. So I learned how to make piccolo peat bombs that night, Right? Like, it's really easy in order to use this thing that is supposed to be used for celebration, that is supposed to be used in a way that it was created to be used, but instead, I figured out how you could blow up someone's hand that night. I'm not going to teach you how to do it. I'm not going to share that with you. Okay, but that being said, something that was intended for one thing is now rendered ineffective and now bad because of the fact that it's being used incorrectly. Same thing that is going on here with God's law, except ten fingers at that point, okay? Okay. So think about this, though, like even for a moment, think about like put yourself in his shoes, in Habakkuk's shoes. If you just like imagine accusing God, not only of overlooking evil at that point, but actually of God approving of evil. Like, God, oh, yeah, yeah, it seems like you're going to rubber, rubber stamp that. And at first glance, like, like when we hear God being accused of wrongdoing or God, how come your God approves of that or whatever, like our, our natural instincts as good Christians is to jump to God's defense, right? Like, well, no, my God is super loving. A loving God would never do something like that. Or my God is super just, so they are going to get what's coming to them, whether in this life or the next. Like God is going to handle it and we think, I've done my job. I've done a good job at defending, defending God. First of all, God doesn't need your defense, okay? God's got big shoulders. He can handle his own defenses, okay? But secondly, what happens then is that we have now restricted other people's ability to be able to lament to God, to be able to cry out to God amid that confusion. I'm not saying this is always wrong or anything like that, but that reaction trains us to always want to have the answers. And we always have the answers, we don't allow the, like the burden that people feel with the chaos and the confusion of the world to be able to just be cried out to God and let God be able to handle those things. A while back, a, a pastor of mine actually said this about lament, said this about crying out to God like Habakkuk is doing here. He's, he's defining biblical lament. He said, lament is taking your complaint to someone who can do something about it. Not gossiping, not like, can you believe what God did or anything like that, right? Like, how dare he allows those things to happen? No, take it to somebody who can do something about it. Cry out to them and say, hey, look, this is an issue that's happening. I need help. You can fix it. Help me to fix it. And that's largely what Habakkuk is doing here. So lament is complaining to God rather than complaining about God. There's a world of difference between those two things. So that's Habakkuk's side of the story. Verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk gets his time to lament. Habakkuk gets his time to cry out. But now comes my favorite part of the story. Usually my favorite part of the story when God comes gets to step up to the plate. And he's like, okay, now my turn. Let me tell you what's going on. And it starts in verse 5. And this is, this is such a juicy piece of scripture right here, specifically 5 through 7. But it goes all the way through 11. It says, look at the nations and watch. This is God talking to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings that that, that aren't their own. They're not their own. They're feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. God doesn't remain silent here. Even though Habakkuk complained about his indifference and inactivity, even saying God approved of everything that was going down. It would be like us saying like God, God look, look at our country. I can't believe that you approve of this sexual idolatry. How can you rubber stamp this? How are you okay with this? Like, I can't believe you approve of of transgenderism. You created people perfectly. How how are you rubber stamping this? How are you rubber stamping abortion? How are you approving of violence and school shootings and on and on and on? And looking at our culture and saying, God, not only you don't care, you don't approve of this. That's the equivalent of what Habakkuk is doing. So God powerfully responds. In verse 5, he's like, I am doing something. From Habakkuk's perspective, God's doing nothing. and He needed to understand that God is always doing something, even when he can't understand it. And Habakkuk needed to wrestle with God's design and know that amid the chaos and know that, that amid the confusion and, and amid like the God, where are you? He says, I am doing something. And not only am I doing something, but you will be amazed by it. You wouldn't believe what I'm about to do even if I told you what I'm about to do. I'm going to blow your mind right now. And the nations here, man, they're, they're far worse than Israel in terms of like flaunting their sin. Like at least Israel kind of gave lip service to God for the, for the most part. And this doesn't excuse Judah's sin, but, but, but largely it was to prepare them for what was to come next. Habakkuk's complaining about God's indifference and that he was going to notice about the the rampant wickedness in Judah. And so in response, he says, I am doing something, but it was something that Habakkuk was not prepared for. And so God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up this massive military power. And that's in verse 6. Babylonia, at this point, they they had never been a serious player on the political military stage. They never, never was. But around 1100 B.C., roughly the same time for you people who like the book of Judges, roughly the same time that Samson was getting his hair cut off and judging Israel at that point, that's largely when another king, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, rises to power. And he has a ton of military success. And he did so by driving out foreign powers and by running people over and achieving independence, even though it was short-lived. And so the scripture says that the Babylonians, they're, they're bitter, they're impetuous. They're this nation that just marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories that aren't its own. That was their goal. I'm just going to run over people. I'm going to expand my territory. Their only goal, their single goal was conquest. Bloodthirsty. And they seized land wherever they went. Verse 7 talks about the fact they're fierce and they're, they're terrifying. Their views of sovereignty stems from themselves. Like if I'm going to do something, I have the power to do it. I don't need to rely on anything or anyone else in order to get it done. I'm good enough. Watch what I can do. It talks about that a little bit in verse 7. And they're not ruled by any law. Like the Jews, at least, like I said, they paid lip service to to God's law, which gave rules for kind of warfare and different things that they did. Even if they didn't obey it from the heart, they at least did it because that's what they were supposed to do. The Babylonians, man, they made up rules as they went along. Like, I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to conquer this nation, to conquer these people. That didn't work. I'll try something else. If they felt like raping and pillaging and murdering, they did exactly as they pleased. No authority to answer to. And even beyond that, and even more frighteningly, they had the military might to back their desires. This isn't like, hey, don't go to that part of town. There's a rough couple of people over there. This is an entire nation with a military behind it that is just like, yeah, go do what you want. Go conquer land for us. No rules. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so it even says that they're horses, they're, they're swift like leopards, right? And they're more fierce, they're fiercer than wolves at night. And, and, and in a pre-industrial era before tanks and guns and, and all of that stuff, a nation's cavalry was its strongest asset. That was largely what was going to be most important. So this Babylonian cavalry was superior to its opponents in every way. Strength, speed, stamina, all of the different things. And the actual warriors riding those horses were as well trained as their arsenal was fierce. These were people you did not want to mess with. Verse 8 talks about the, 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 the horsemen in general, how they charge ahead and they, they come from distant lands. They fly like eagles. They swoop down to devour. And their intent to devour was matched by their training to do so. And so the Babylonians, they're not coming with an offer of peace. They're not like, hey, can we just fight until we're both tired and then we'll both throw up a white flag and call it good. We'll draw a line right here and call it a boundary. That wasn't their intent. That wasn't their goal. Peace was not on the table. A treaty was not part of the agenda, and there would be no negotiation here. Verse 9 talks about the fact that all of them come just to, like, just to do violence, and their faces, they're, they're set, and they're determined to do so. They gather prisoners like sand. They're single-minded in their goal to destroy everything, and nothing was going to stop them. They mocked kings, they mocked rulers. Those guys were a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress. Warfare was just child's play. And they were supremely confident in their ability to emerge victorious. And their confidence is well-founded. right? They swept through people like wind. I don't know the last time you've tried to stop wind. It usually doesn't go so well. And my umbrella usually ends up in my pool. But that's who they were. And the summary at the end of verse 11 largely captures it well, where God says, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Right, they, were, they were exactly as bloodthirsty and violent as Habakkuk feared that they were going to be. Now, the army wasn't going to be stopped. It would actually follow its God, and its God was its own strength. Whatever it could accomplish by strength, it would do. Nothing was going to restrain it. And as we kind of listen to this description of the Babylonians, you can maybe better understand Habakkuk's disbelief. Right? He lamented the wickedness of Judah. He cried out because of the wickedness of Judah. Of, of Judah. But would God really, would God really use a nation even more wicked than Judah to judge Judah's sin? We have some people over here who are really, really wicked and other people over here who are supposed to be God's people but are kind of wicked. So you're gonna use the really, really wicked people to judge the not as wicked people? Like that's your, that's your plan? God, like how could it possibly be right for the righteous to suffer at the hand of the godless? How is that okay? And as we wrestle through this, I just want you to think about a few things. Like, first, God is not as committed to our comfort as we are. Hear that. Let me say that again for those of you who are upset that it's warm in here today. God, (laughs) sorry, I'm upset about it too. God is not as committed to our comfort as we are. In America today, we've kind of bought into this subtle form of prosperity gospel, where we kind of think that the church must always be in a position of power and the church must always be in a position of, of prominence, right? And we know that we have a great commission. We know that we're supposed to go, we're supposed to make the disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all that stuff. And we think that the only way to do that is prominence. Why? Because that's all we know. Right? That's how we were born, That's how, it's where we grew up. And the moment there is even the slightest hint that we're losing our power as a church or like as a people group of Christians, we fear that the kingdom of God is at stake. We're terrified at that point. Freedom of religion, religious worship, it's enshrined in our constitution. I think it should be enshrined in our constitution. I'm with you. And societally... This next thing I'm going to say, it feels like it's changing a little bit. But many of us grew up in a world in which Christianity has been viewed with a degree of respectability, right? Like even today, politicians, people who are starting the political process, whatever, know the power of simply paying lip service to God. I was saying, "Yep, I'm a Christian." Oh, he's a Christian. I'm going to vote for him. Like they know that power. The problem is, though, is because we have enjoyed this position of power for so long, we think that it's something that God owes to us. The era in which we live is weird, that Christianity is mainstream. We are a fluke, actually, if you look at the history of Christianity. And so this power and its prominence is, is not normal And so we think that God kind of owes it to us, or at the very least that it's something that he is deeply committed to preserving, right? I mean, after all, God is even more concerned about the progress of his kingdom than we are. So why wouldn't he? And the progress of his kingdom depends on Christianity and power. He's gonna protect that. Don't worry about that. It's the other side, though, because Habakkuk actually teaches us that God is far more concerned about our holiness than our happiness, He's far more deeply committed to our conformity to his son than he is concerned about our comfort. Like if God needs to inflict pain in order to produce holiness in us, guess what he's going to do? Inflict pain. God's not concerned about your comfort. He's concerned about your holiness. This is what he's telling Habakkuk here. So we should take this exhortation to walk in holiness real seriously. But beyond that, and now that I've stepped on all of your toes, be encouraged, though, from this text, that God is always doing something. And I think this is where most of you are going to feel this. Uh, I believe it was John Piper who said that when things seem bleakest, we should remember that God is always doing something, even if it's in the dark. And we don't think about that oftentimes. We just think he's missing Habakkuk could not see any evidence of God's activity, but God assures assures him, I am doing something. He's always at work, even when we see no evidence of it. And this assurance should fuel our faith, and this assurance should fuel, fuel our prayer life. It's actually funny, because as you think through it, we think, oh, this is unfair. We think, how could God use the unrighteous to judge the more righteous? Can we just stop for a second and consider God's greatest, most unfathomable act of all? And we're going to see it next week. Habakkuk couldn't, could not fathom why God would judge a more righteous nation with a more wicked nation. It didn't seem right to him. And for us, it probably doesn't seem right as well. But it's the same principle that underlines actually the beauty of the gospel. See, in the gospel... God not only judged the righteous one at the hand of the unrighteous, at the hand of the wicked, but actually judged the righteous one for the wicked. God goes a step further with the gospel than even he went with Habakkuk, the nation of Judah and the Babylonians. God said of the Babylonians in verse 11, they are guilty. Their strength is their God. God. You look at that verse in verse 11, it's like you could copy and paste that onto every single one of us in this room. That they are guilty. Their strength is their God. Because in our sin, we stood guilty before God. Romans talks about the fact that we were sent to irrevocable death. There is nothing that we could do. The wages of sin is death. We were destined to eternal destruction from God's presence. But Jesus, it's my favorite part of the gospel, but Jesus, the righteous one, he comes and stands in our place. He's nailed to the cross and he's killed by lawless people, not because of the guilt of his own, but because of our guilt, right? He took our death so we could receive life in him. And maybe for some of you in here, that, may, that might be a truth that maybe feels and seems unbelievable. But guess what God says in verse 5? Verse you're going to be utterly astounded by what I do. I could tell you, but you're not even going to believe it. I'm going to make dead men alive. I'm going I'm to turn trash into beauty. That's the God we serve. He came to hang on a cross so we could be with him forever, even over the course of the couple thousand-year history of the Jews. You don't think there were times when the Jews were like, hey, where's this Messiah that you keep talking about? Like, where's this Savior that you keep promising, God? Like, where, where are you? And then God did send him. And granted, he sent him, and he was like, this guy, born in a barn, you don't know what I'm doing, but you cannot fathom what is about to take place. It's the reality of the gospel. God, why aren't you doing something? He is doing something. And we will be utterly astounded by it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for Habakkuk, largely a book that gets over, overlooked. So thank you for your word in that. But God, I just I, I, just feel like there's people in this room who, who just simply need to cry out to you, who need to just, man, just utter out to you, lament to you. They're like, God, I don't get it. I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why you're allowing this to happen. But talking to you about it, bringing it to you because you can simply do something about it. If that's if that's you today with head still bowed and eyes still closed, man, just in the quietness of your heart, just lament. God, why, why are you allowing this to happen? And then God, in the same breath, I just pray that we would, we would also sit here and recognize that like you're sovereign. And so God, I know you're doing something, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier for me right now. But I have assurance that you're good and I have assurance of your character and I have assurance of the fact that you are just sovereign and above all. And so I'm just going to sit in this and trust in the idea that you've got it taken care of. And maybe there's some of you in the room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed who have never, never acknowledged the fact that God is Lord that you want to enter into that ability to bring something to someone who actually do something about it. And if that's you and you just recognize that, man, God sent his son to be the savior of the world, that he is doing something, even when he doesn't, even when we don't feel like it. But he sent his son to die on a cross for each and every one of our sins. If that's you today and you want to make that acknowledgement, you can simply pray. Pray along with me. We pray the ABC's here. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I have fallen short every single day, that I'm a sinful person, but B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me, that he took that shame, he took the guilt, he took the sin with him to the cross, and that he conquered death there. And see that now I choose to follow you every single day. Even when I don't hear you, even when I don't see you moving, that I choose to follow you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.